Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, John Lanchester on his latest novel, The War. John Lanchester has written four novels, The Debt to Pleasure, Mr Phillips, Fragrant Harbour and Capital, and three works of non-fiction, Family Romance, a memoir, Whoops, Why Everyone Owes Everyone and No One Can Pay, about the global financial crisis, and which we, we spoke about on a Little Atoms many years ago, and How to Speak Money, a primer in popular economics. His books have won the Hawthornden Prize, the Whitbread First Novel Prize, the E.M. Forster Award, and the Premier Libretta, and has been long-listed for the Booker Prize and translated into 25 languages. He's also a contributing editor to the London Review of Books and a regular contributor to The New Yorker. And John's latest novel, The Wall, we're going to be talking about today. John, welcome back. To thanks, thanks for having me again. So how would you describe The Wall, first of all? I'm not sure I would. You know, that's one of the nice <laughs> things about having a book comes out is hearing other people describe it back to you. Um, and there's a sort of surprise aspect to that because um, it's often not quite what you see coming and the word that's been used a lot is dystopia which wasn't a word at all in my I mean I don't disavow or disclaim that but it wasn't in my mind while I was writing it well you see this is more of a uh, utopia do you no well I saw it as a kind of um almost a non-fictional I mean obviously it's a work of fiction so just have to explain what I mean by that that I accepted a premise which is this sort of catastrophic catastrophic climate change they refer to in the book as the change, um, which isn't all that exotic a premise if you look at you know what the climate scientists are saying, uh, like the International Panel on Climate Change talks about if there's no change, we're heading for a world with several degrees of warming. No change in our behaviour, I mean. world with several degrees of warming but we're by the end of the century. And I really took that as the, the premise and then, in a sense, was trying to work out what the world around it might look like and you know in a way it's sort of it's actually slightly scarier than a dystopia because dystopia you have various sort of alternative realities and I suppose one of the things I'd say is you know I hope it's an alternative reality but actually it's not really clear that it is in terms of the direction of travel. The story is told from the perspective of uh, Joseph Kavanagh and therefore we we have a limited perspective. We only know what he knows. We only see what he sees, and which means that a lot of the things that have gone on in the in in the world, a lot of the uh, consequences of the change, for instance, 
are unknown to us. Was that was that a deliberate move? Yeah, very much so. Um, for a number of reasons. Partly, I wanted to lead the reader into a strange world and into an unfamiliar world. And if you a narrator can have the effect of being a kind of companion, you know, and things that seem uh, you're sort of guided towards things that are estranged or different or altered. Whereas a kind of omniscient narrator plonking, plonking a completely constructed different world down in front of you, that can, I mean, you know, there are lots of novels that do that very, very effectively, but it is a slightly different thing. And um, I wanted also to write about the perspective of someone who's grown up in a different world. That was very much um, an ambition of mine for the book, to talk about how different the world, uh, not just, you know, how different the world is objectively in terms of climate and all the impact of that, but how different it seems. And, you know, one of the privileges you have in fiction is is that ability to enter people's heads and to kind of see reality from their point of view. And there are things that that we see about his world that he doesn't. You know, that's one of the things that it's like children growing up, you know, reality, their lives seem normal to them. And, you know, wanted some of the sort of jarring things about Kavanagh's world to be things that he, in a sense, doesn't notice. So what we do know of the of the change from Kavanagh's limited perspective is, you know, the the sea levels have risen and the weather has changed fundamentally. Um, and a consequence of this is the titular wall. So tell us what the wall is. The, the wall is a not just the weather, but it's changed the climate. It's the whole system. And that's an important distinction in the science as you read up on it. Um, um, the wall is it's a five-metre-high concrete barrier that runs all the way around Britain, basically. And it's designed, it does two things. It's um, to keep the water out, it's what's called, in engineering it's called a polder, which is what you do when the water on one side is higher than the land on the other. And they're not an exotic invention, they've been around for a long time. Ne- the Netherlands has had um, polders for hundreds of years, and a third of the land surface of the Netherlands is below sea level, and has been since the 1700. So they are, you know, it's not, um, it's not fanciful, that um, notion of a, a barrier to keep the water out and so the one, first thing it does is keep the water out and the second thing it does is it keeps out people because in this world that I imagined as being you know, several degrees warmer one of the uh, tragically inevitable consequences of that I think is that you have hundreds of millions of displaced people fleeing the uninhabitable parts of the world I mean if you look at um, if you look online at the map you know, world with four degrees of warming it is an absolute thing of horror the new map of the world that we have because it's a thing I think people sometimes forget, but um, Beijing, Madrid and New York are all pretty much on the same latitude, on about latitude 40. And that's the most densely settled part of our planet now. And that part, with about four degrees warming, is people can't live there. And so that's the world of the book. We have this, the world, where I keep sort of having to censor myself from using is unimaginable because I, do, I actually do think it's very hard to process. I think our imagination is almost designed to reject it, that that scale of, you know, horrific change and displacement. Uh, but that's what's happened. And so they built this giant fortification to keep out basically everybody else in the world. And they, in the world of the book, they just refer to them as the others. You know, everybody who's not inside this island is just an other. And so why is Kavanaugh at the wall? Because every citizen of the country has to spend two years as, as a sort of duty of citizen. I suppose it's analogous to national service. And, of course, one of the odd things about that is... Um, I'm in my mid-50s, people my age in Europe did national service. You know, it's not... It feels an incredibly 
distant and remote world to young people today but actually you know we're a generation away from it being completely normal and um that's in the novel it's effectively come back and as a condition of citizenship of the country you do two years standing guard on the wall and they have a very very simple rule which is that you if someone gets over the wall while you're on guard on your watch you um, get kicked out, you're put to sea and you become an other yourself. So let's talk about other changes in day-to-day life in the society. As I said, the the perspective here is quite limited, but there are certain things we know. As you've just said, Cavanagh is serving his two-year term on the wall. And then there are other groups of people, one particularly called breeders, um, which I guess is pretty self-explanatory. And there's, there's also inevitably an elite who ostensibly are supposed to also take their turn. And also throughout the book, Cavanna has this sort of dream that becoming a member of the elite is an unattainable thing. But as it is today, you know, this is really a pipe dream, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, one of the things... I was, so I was trying to imagine, as I say, in my sort of premise of it being a kind of non-fiction, or non-fiction if you accept one big thing and then what follows, I was saying, well, what would the government of that society be like? How would it run? And a conclusion I came to was that Actually, the level of, you know, that four-degree warmer world, it's not just a different map of the world. It's everything would function differently at the level of economic, society, culture, politics, identity. I mean, everything. People would just experience life in a fundamentally different way. I tried to catch that in Kavanaugh, that this, this is sort of, it's familiar, but it's really actually the more you look at it, the more properly different it is. And at the same time, some things would work in a broadly similar way and and so the, the idea my idea was that the state functions roughly as it does in in wartime that you have you know notional freedoms that in fact are heavily circumscribed and you have a version of democracy functioning but maybe it's a kind of pretend democracy so my notion of how the government works it's a kind of you know basically um, oligarchic fake democracy which if you're a very cynical person you could say isn't so different from what we have now in that you have you know lots of noise and lots of kerfuffle but broadly speaking it's the same sort of people implementing the same roughly speaking the same sorts of policies and the changes are kind of cosmetic and superficial so that was my notion of how the state works and that kind of oligarchic group that keep running it are just referred to as the elite and Kavanagh kind of has noticed or has worked out for himself that the way one of the ways elites work is that they do have to let you have to let bright, ambitious, up-and-coming people in occasionally because otherwise the elites don't renew themselves and it creates kind of safety valve. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's that old remark from uh, Giuseppe de Lampedusa's The Leopard that, you know, when the character says, uh, if we want, if we want um, everything to stay the same, everything's going to have to change, you know. Uh, and the, the sort of elite functions in that way in the book. And Kavanagh knows that and, he you know, he's just desperate to get out. He's a sort of ambitious provincial kid who knows that there's a bigger life somewhere else. Um, and he's... At the start of the novel in particular, he's sort of... There's a streak of ruthlessness is the wrong word, but there's a streak of sort of selfishness and ambition to him. And he just, you know, he wants something more, basically. He wants something more than he's known about. And then other things like the breeders, uh, in the one of the things that's happened in this world is that people don't want to have children. People don't want children to be born into the world. I know we have a little bit of that now, in fact, sometimes with climate change as a motivation. But um, that's sort of massively exacerbated in this post-change world and um, so the state has a huge incentive to get people to have more children so one of the ways you can get off the wall is if you um, hook up with someone and decide and you know decide to have a baby and get pregnant and that means you're spared your duty and those people who do that are just called um, called breeders and it's an unusual choice in the world of the book because most people choose not to. It's worth restating that this is a story told from the perspective of someone on this wall guarding 
the country from the others. And of course, you know, there are plenty of stories told from the perspective of, you know, someone who could, could be considered another trying to escape their situation, trying to get to a place. And so it's it's an interesting trick here because our sympathies are on the side of Kavana, although he's only, a, you know, a very small sort of cog in this wheel. And it's sort of like quite late on in the book, there's events obviously that we're not going to talk about what happens, but it's sort of like quite late on in the book where the, the horror of what they're doing is suddenly brought home to you. And I think that's, that's a, a really great way of doing it. Well, thank you. Well, I was interested in that. I mean, I've always been interested in, you know, when people think about historical terrors, Nazism. Concentration camp guards. Concentration camp guards, yeah. you know, um, empire, things like that. I mean, now stories are often told from the perspective of the victims. And we, you know, you perceive the injustice very quickly and saw that way. But I think there's a disturbing and subtle thing is that actually lots of us in those circumstances, we aren't the victims. We are the guards. Um, we are the people going about our daily business not noticing. We are maybe crossing the street to avoid things or just, just not looking at things. That's a very common thing. And and curiously, I think over over historical time frames, when we look back, the things that we judge the people in the past for are very often things that they didn't see as morally central, you know, that the things that in their kind of peripheral vision. And I think Orwell said that the thing to the hardest thing to write about and the hardest thing to see is the thing just directly straight in front of your face. And so Kavanagh doesn't really see the ways in which his society is ethnically distorted. And one of the things about it in the book, it is effectively a slave society. They, others who get in and get over the wall are, are turned into what's called help, which is effectively means slaves. Um, it is a euphemism, you know, it's a good way of, of making it seem more gentle, almost as if we're doing them a favour. And the people in the state perceive that they are doing them a favour, because they're offered a choice. They can be euthanised, put back to sea, or allowed to become help. So, that you know, it's the infinite bounty and largesse of the state. Um, and Kavanagh doesn't actually see that. The people in that society don't actually see that. And it's only in the course of the book that he just faintly begins to catch in a sort of moral version of his peripheral vision kind of ethical peripheral vision that there might be other ways of looking at it but that I must admit that does uh, interest me as a thing because it seems to me actually that's often what happens with our morality is that it does become conditioned by the things we see and the things we get used to every day and the things that we see every day are sort of deeply imbued by the things we're not seeing I think it's a curious condition of modernity that we know so much about so much of the harm and wrong that's happening in the world that we actually in a way we think we're sensitized to it but actually in a way I think you could argue that we are shutting down morally that we sort of have to dial down our sensitivity a bit just to sort of get through the day and there's a I mean the novels that do that there's a book um you know given that our culture is very oriented around prizes books that win prizes are normally the ones you hear a lot about and the, I think the one great exception to that it's a novel by a woman called Valerie Martin called Property, which won the Orange Prize, which when it was a big deal back in the day. But you never hear anyone talk about it. And the reason you don't is because property is about slavery, but it's from the point of view of a slave owner. And she doesn't glimpse around the peripheral vision of her own morality. She's just sort of fully in the right, fully entitled. And the last sentence of the book is something about how it's about a slave who escapes and then is rounded up. And, you know, it's extraordinary that anyone could have such ingratitude. And it's like a a bucket of ice water in the face as a novel. It really makes it actually know that that's what it's like to not see your own ethics. And that perspective does interest me in the fictional point of view. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to John Lanchester. We're talking about his latest novel, The Wall. And John, obviously we've talked about, I want to sort of get us on to other, other places where the idea for this book came from, perhaps. And obviously, you know, catastrophic climate change is really the obvious one. But of course, you know, where we are now, a few measly days away from catastrophic Brexit, the turnips and the xenophobia in this book, you know, remind me heavily of where we're going anyway, regardless of rising sea levels. Well, it, I mean, climate change was in my mind while I was writing at Brexit. It wasn't on my mind while I was at my desk. Though it did overlap, you know, I started in 2016. Um, and it would be odd in a way if it weren't kind of figured in the book in some sense. I suppose one thing I'd say is that, you know, I was writing, I was imagining... You know, like the bit in grass, we have a solid line up to the present. This is what has actually happened. And then it goes into a dotted line of this is where the projections are. And I I did consciously have, you know, I was thinking about that dotted line stretching into the future in terms of trends in the climate and was thinking about trends in our politics, trends of of a sort of reaction against international global, um, and it's sometimes framed as open v close, which I think is sometimes a bit unfair. But, you know, that kind of dialectic in our society has been has taken a turn back and was thinking about that that trend carrying on. So the, um, you know, things like Trump's wall and Brexit, although they're in no sense, uh, I wasn't trying to predict them, but they are kind of slightly, I suppose I would say that they, it's consistent with things still being on that dotted line. Though the final odd thing about Brexit, I mean, the thing that I don't think anybody could have foreseen, you know, even if you had a fully functioning crystal ball or a TARDIS or anything like that, is, is that, as you say, I mean, it's just days away. And if you'd gone into a coma the day, you know, 
someone told you the referendum result, you fainted, you were out cold for, you know, two and three quarter years and just woke up and say, oh, what's happened? And I presume you, it's all sorted now. I mean, the, exactly. I mean, the, there's two ways of answering that. One, one way you could, you know, well, 500 incredibly specific pieces of news and front page headlines. Or the other, perhaps more accurate answer is nothing. Nothing's happened. We don't know. He says, no, no, but I mean, our future relationship with Europe, I mean, what's happening about that? He says, nothing. Don't know. No idea. And that, that's something that I think there's absolutely no way you could have foreseen that it's, you know, as you say, a matter of days away. And there isn't a person alive who could answer the question, what would Britain's relationship with Europe be on March the 30th? I mean, that is properly, properly mad. One of the other major themes in the book is that there's this growing this divide between Cavanagh's generation and his parents' generation, um, you know, the sort of older generation who knows that they've basically destroyed the world for their children. And again, we're talking here in the book about climate change, but this is very much something that's going on now. This sort of like, you know, baby boomer never had it so good generation and, and all of their children up to the eyeballs in student loans dreaming that one day they might be able to afford to buy a house. It's something that's going on. It is, and I, I did, um, you know, think about that as a aspect of life today, um, but I think it's hugely magnified by climate change because I think you, fa- you face the prospect of a world in which, you know, in the kind of more accelerated versions of it, it happens in a couple of generations, and the super accelerated versions, it's within a generation. And you'd have this very strange, very dark thing of people growing up, essentially growing up on different planets and growing up in different versions. I mean, the intergenerational inequality we talk about now is, I think, well, you know, because people my age, as I said, in my mid-50s, you know, things weren't perfect when we were 20. Thatcher and Reagan were in power. We were worried about nuclear war. Inflation rates were in, you know, in the teens. Unemployment rates triple what it is now. You know, there were lots of things that were dark and difficult. We didn't know that life was going to improve for lots of people. But I think in the current moment, the trajectory we're on is very, it has this very clear direction of travel towards this uh, uh, really almost apocalyptically altered world. And the idea of that happening in one generation of the whole, not just the social contract being altered, because I think that's the thing about intergenerational inequality now. So you see, yes, on the one hand, on the other hand, but then there's this thing about, but actually there's a slightly different version of the social contract between the generations. And that really is unfair that, that people grow up with a kind of one kind of welfare state and then the next generation grows up with a different one. You know, that does mean you're kind of inhabiting parallel realities. And then dial it up a notch with that thing about growing up in different planets. And I think one of the ways that would play out is you'd have a very directly personalised sense of blame. You know, and in the novel, Kavanagh very directly blames his parents and their generation for, for having the broken in the world. I mean, I mean, one thing I do think you know, is that you can... Um, one of the themes in the book is people don't have that much agency. You know, people... We're deeply imbued with the idea that we have agency in our own lives, but actually, in fact, it's a thing in my last novels of Capital as well. I got interested in the fact that actually some of the time we just don't. You know, when these huge economic forces just blow through people's lives like a hurricane and overturn things, and people want to know what they could have done differently, and, and there's the sort of tragic answer sometimes that we find it very hard to process is actually... You know, the hurricane doesn't care about you. You know, you actually don't have much agency. And in this this climate change world, people don't have much agency and and much... They don't have many levers they can pull. And so Kavanagh sort of chooses to see his parents as having not acted. But I think the reader can think... The reader can have mixed feelings about that and wonder actually whether it's fair. We've talked already about how, you know, we're seeing 
this new Britain from quite a limited perspective and also, you know, very little of the outside world. But tell us something about that world building you had to do anyway. Talk about how, you know, how that view of what the country was like in the future came together. Well, I thought about it quite a lot. The, the kind of genesis of the book, I had a dream about a man standing on a wall, um, a recurring dream over a series of nights. And then I started to think about what the world you know, who he was, what was happening around him, and then realised that it was a novel about climate change, or that it was an image about climate change, this man standing on a wall with the water on the other side. I was imagining this sort of altered world. And then I started thinking, well, OK, so what's that world like? And in a sense, the writing of the book was about unpacking that, and the story is, in a sense, about gradually unpacking what that altered world is like. So I did spend quite a bit of time thinking about, you know, it's very cold in the book, and that's because the Gulf Stream doesn't function anymore. You know, there's sort of quite there's a fair bit of reading on science and climate and all that stuff lurking in the background. But I didn't put. I wanted to be careful about um, how much of that I actually put in. I think there's a thing with fiction that sometimes it's it's useful to for the writer to know things, but it's not always necessary to them to tell the reader. And there's a curious thing that the readers, I think, can tell when the author. I certainly feel that myself reading things that you can sort of. You can tell when there's a reality that's not there, you know, that it's sort of been imagined and it's present, but it's it's not necessarily explained to you. Um, you notice it, I think, I notice it in adaptations, and, and the thing at the moment when you can sort of... It's quite a striking example of that with The Handmaid's Tale. If you're watching that, you know, there's something extraordinarily vivid and powerful about the first season of that, and it has a sort of three-dimensionality to it. And in the second season, which is no longer based on the book, just doesn't have it in the same way. There is a, um, you know, there's all the images of women being tortured and this sort of horrible, misogynistic, brutally oppressive, theocratic state. But there's something shallower and nastier about it. And I think it's exactly because it doesn't have that three-dimensionality. It doesn't have Atwood's book behind it. And I think there's something slightly magical. And so, well, I think it's one of the reasons Game of Thrones is so popular, again, is that because the books are these colossal things. And there is a whole hinterland behind everything. Every scene has... You know, a ten times longer thing in the book, kind of behind it, supporting it. And it, it is very obvious with that series that you know the moment. I mean, obviously, the series has a writer as well as the novels had a writer, but you know, the, it's the moment where they they caught up with the books that it sort of goes off the rails a bit. Do you think? I see. I quite like the direction it's taken with it, and um, I, I'm going to have to put that one on hold because we're re I'm re-watching it at home with my wife, and we're. Only halfway through, so we haven't caught up with. Uh, we'll have to see how it pans out anyway. Uh, the other thing the, the last reala- series is coming up. Rapidly. No, exactly. Suspend. The other thing about it, I realise, is that because I've been, I've watched it the first time round as it was broadcast, and it was usually after dinner. And I, I wouldn't say I was, you know, I wouldn't say I was drunk, but I almost always had a couple of glasses of wine. I sat down, and I, it's funny because I've been not drinking in January, and it's funny watching it completely sober because I do. I think I'm getting a lot more out of it. I'm noticing a lot more, a lot more of the sort of detail that is carried over from the, from the world. I really think it's a remarkable piece. And you look at start again at the beginning. There's an incredible amount of rather subtle foreshadowing done. You know, like the very first time you meet a character, it almost always predicts their fate later on. It's quite, it's quite a trick that to pull off something. You know eight, nine years in advance. Just one more thing from me, and then I'll, I'll get you to, to read a bit of The Wall, if you would. Um, we're talking about other books, but what other books were perhaps an influence on this one? Well, I mean, I've had this odd thing that I've read more I've read more things that have influenced it after I finished it, in a weird way, because people, because of the dystopian thing keeps going up. So I went back and reread 
Huxley and Orwell. 1984 seems to be, you know, the feel of that sort of post-war world or like wartime world, as you described in in the first half, does feel very 1984. Yeah, I I don't know if it's a direct influence or or if it's just that thing about imagining... Yeah, I did kind of take as part of the given that it would be like a world war and that... And maybe that sense of a kind of kind of narrow, kind of pinched, constrained, straight and slightly grey life, as you put it, Tony Epson's xenophobia. You know, I think that come really comes out of that. I mean, it was striking rereading 1984, rereading it by Brave New World, because I actually think they're very different kinds of dystopia. Because Orwell was really writing about the present. He was writing you know, the totalitarian trends he'd seen, especially fighting in Spain, and he was in a way saying that this is here right now, and it could come everywhere. And there's everything, and the novel smells of boiled cabbage, you know, and it has this very distinct, you know, almost overpowering atmosphere of World War Two, and as I say, it was a sort of drilling down to the present to say, you know, this could come. Whereas Brave New World was is was much more of a futuristic piece. I mean, Huxley's family were very scientific, and he had a sort of speculative philosophical training, so he was much more, I think, doing a thing of projecting things into the future and trying to imagine, you know, where we end up if we keep going the way we're going, and and and. Some of the things he predicted are kind of freakishly percipient, you know, things like genetic engineering, overpowering, distracting entertainments, the fact that the fundamental role of all mass media is to kind of take you out of yourself and stop you thinking and feeling. That was an amazing thing to foreseen in 1932, you know, depression's just kicking in. And also um, the thing about pills and drugs and medicine to stop you feeling anything too strongly. You know, if, if you feel something too strongly, you take a med to get... Make, to make it go away that's a remarkable thing to have to have seen and i do think there's something but i th- do think you know in terms of dystopias i do think there's a fundamental shift that about you know where you take william gibson's thing about you know the future's already here it's just unevenly distributed in a sense his novels are about the present or actually properly trying to imagine where we end up if we carry on the way we're going can i get you to um so um, i'm going to read the very opening very opening page of the book it's cold on the wall that's the first thing everybody tells you and the first thing you notice when you're sent there. And it's the thing you think about all the time you're on it, and it's the thing you remember when you're not there anymore. It's cold on the wall. You look for metaphors. It's cold as slate, as diamond, as the moon. Cold as charity. That's a good one. But you soon realise that the thing about the cold is that it isn't a metaphor. It isn't like anything else. It's nothing but a physical fact. This kind of cold, anyway. Cold is cold is cold. So that's the first thing that hits you. It isn't like other cold. This is a cold that's all about the place, like a permanent physical attribute of the location. The cold is one of its fundamental properties. It's intrinsic. So it hits you as a package the first time you go to the wall on the first day of your tour. You know that you were there for two years. You know that it's basically the same everywhere as far as geography goes and that everything depends on what the people you will be serving with are like. You know there's nothing you can do about that. It's frightening, but also, in its way, a little bit freeing. No choice. Everything about the wall means you have no choice. So I've been talking to John Lanchester. We've been talking about his latest novel, The Wall, which is out now from Faber. John, thank you so much for coming in and telling me about it. Thank you very much, Neil.
This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.